This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Our Emotional Footprint, subtitled Ordinary People and Their Extraordinary Lives. And joining me from California is our author, Solivine Memdi. Thank you, sir, for joining today. My pleasure, absolutely. This is a great book because of the content. It also is fascinating to me, your your family history, your story. Your father, was it Lithuania that your father was born in? or Tell me a little yeah. about his history. My father was an impoverished uh, young man in a, what was called a shtetl, like Anna Tefka from uh, my, my fair lady, from uh, Fiddlers on the Roof. And uh, with a lot of uh, pogroms, anti-Semitic activity, and poverty, and cold, and then the Nazis came. It was not a pretty picture. And uh, he escaped uh, around the in his twenties to Canada, mm. and uh, met my mom and uh, started work as actually as a bricklayer. He had no education really, but he was a, a the why he is my sort of hero is that he was self-taught and very cultured and very thoughtful but mainly very kind to others mm. interested in people um and and uh generous that is he 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 wanted to make people feel good and encourage them to accomplish things on their own anyway he was that kind of hero for me that's that, and, uh, that's a wonderful and talent one, one last thing about sure. him is that he he could have been a very very bitter man, but he wasn't. He was the opposite. He was, and people just he attracted people around him because of his smile and his interest and his warmth, and his genuineness, his authenticity. So, um, and he was, as I will say, uh, in spite of this wonderful uh, these platitudes. He was an ordinary man. He wasn't a celebrity. He wasn't a major success. He ended up with bankruptcies. He had really tragedies in his life, but always very positive. And then I heard this music called um, Fanfare for the Common Man by, um, it'll come to me a moment. This is an old age talking. Mm-hmm. Aaron Copeland. Yes. A terrific, Copeland. terrific uh, American composer who was very similar to my father's background, a small town in Lithuania, came to Philadelphia as a child spoke no English, and provided extraordinary music. But he wrote something called Fanfare for the Common Man, he called it. it was He did it for FDR during World War II, who wanted him to write a, an overture for uh, the the uh, generals uh, leading the war in the European theater. And he said, no, I want to write it for everybody, every American. Mm. And he wrote Fanfare for the Common Man, which just inspired me. So that's why, to get a long story short, why I wrote the book. Because it's about uh, ten quote ordinary people, and we just scratch the surface of anybody's life. You find extraordinary successes and failures, and loves and losses. Everybody, without exception, I say that even you and I don't yeah. know you, and me and everybody I know and have met in my work in research and clinical work. So that's a long introduction. Well, it's a good introduction because your father, 
had an, I would call that an extraordinary talent as well. Being able to relate to other people is a, is a wonderful skill. Do you think that came from his parenting? I mean, from his parents or, or from his history? How did it develop? No. No, that's such a terrific question. That's the, you know what? That is a, a question that's dealt with somewhat in the book, but it, it's something it, it did not certainly did not come from his parents. They mm. lived a stark life. There were nine brothers and sisters in a single uh, clapboard house with one pot-bellied stove. A father was, um, a mother had a severe depression, and father was out working 24-7. They barely saw him, and also a uh, a manual laborer. So it wasn't that at all. It was that he just felt grateful for whatever he had. Gratitude, which is an important word we, we don't spend enough time thinking about, for himself. Uh, gratitude for whatever came his way. And he was like that till the day he died at the age of 91, about a decade ago. And um, I, I never... Uh, I never forgot that, that lesson of life from him. But that's a terrific question of why did he have it. Um, I knew a lot of his brothers and sisters who had spread over the world when they escaped from uh, Europe during the war. Um, and they were somewhat similar, but not to his extent. He was like, yeah. uh, there was a, a gem of personality. Very good question. Oh, well, maybe, maybe it's because he moved to Canada. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm a Canadian, so lucky. you know how that is. Yes, you have uh, broken down or sort of outlined your book with the uh, four Bs, uh, being, belonging, believing, and benevolence. Those yeah. are, are the character foundations or the foundations of, of your book. Would that be a, the right way to describe that? That's a couple. Uh, the, there are three foundations. One is the four Bs, which I'll get to in a sec. One is resilience which is something I've studied uh, for many years of my life about how resilient human beings are to come back from uh, setbacks, and we all have setbacks. And the third is, in fact, our emotional footprint, and that's part of my father. The emotional footprint is what we bestow on other people, not the money and the material goods, but what is the mood that we instill in other people when we're here and after we're gone? It not I don't mean only in terms of what have we lost, but was there a kind of a, an effect on the emotional atmosphere around this person? Mm. And I know there are people like that. I, I see them every day. I work with them. Um, and there's some that provide a kind of positive emotional footprint and others that provide, frankly, a negative emotional footprint. The four Bs I took from, I was studying young people who joined cults and then other kind of relig uh, religious and other kind of heavy belief movements, and then I also studied elderly people, and when they, all these people of any age look at the quality of their lives, they look at not how many toys and baubles that they have gathered, they look at four things. They look at what kind of a person was I, am I, am I, not was I, people even mm. now. At the, you look in the mirror and do I like this person? Do I respect this person? No guile, no mask. This is what I see. I see him or her with all our flaws and frailties, and I still uh, respect that person. So are you, do you feel that way about yourself? Do you feel grounded? Are you putting on an act for everybody? Belonging is, do you feel that you're part of an integral part of a group? Could it be a family, uh, a church group, uh, colleagues at work, but very close. You feel that you're invited in, you're respected, appreciated, you're a cog in an important wheel, and you feel that you share with them and you yourself values and uh, comfort and that sense of total unequivocal acceptance. Mm. 
The third is belief, and I don't mean necessarily. It could be in a deity, in religion, or God, but belief in a value system. Right. And the belief in uh, principles of living that are beyond uh, everyday life, beyond the material, beyond the rat race, beyond the frenetic pace of our lives, but a, a kind of uh, issue of to get the really existential meaning of life. Why am I here? Uh, what do I really believe in? What is the purpose of all of this? Am I? What kind of person am I in terms of my everyday behavior? And then the last is benevolence, and that has to do with our emotional footprint. It's kind of to sum all the things up. Is have I been good to people? Have I created a a, 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 a generative environment for others, for for my patients, for my clients, for my mm. colleagues, for my customers, for my family, for my children? All this, or have I not? And can I change in the course of life? And I, these are replicated time and time again. I can't tell you how many people have written to me over the years and alluded to these four Bs. Well, Resilience is the last before our emotional footprint is how empowered we are. And I know people who have come from absolute uh, destitution and have turned their lives around. And so it's not a... And I, I use my father as that experience. There, 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 he had nothing. Absolutely, that came to North America without a penny in his pocket, speaking no English and no education and no skills. And he spawned three children, a, a loving wife, a, a, a terrific lesson in life to everybody who knew him. And people nowadays tell me, I knew your father when. It's true. I remember when I was uh, in uh, back in, in college, and they met my, my father, and they said, oh, geez, he was just wonderful. That continued right through the next, well, at that time he was in his 30s, I guess, but until uh, he, he had 60 more years. Incredible. So that's what the book is about. Yeah, the four Bs, resilience and um, uh, our emotional footprint. And I have to say, I used 10 people on a um, railway car I, I made it up but I, these are real people who are ostensibly ordinary people and then I tell the life stories of each of them and then we look at the life stories from these things you and I've just been talking about but each one of these they're very different people different ages <clears throat> this is their whole life story and it's like a, a bio novella uh, tell the story um, and uh, their highs and their lows their setbacks their successes their pains, their sins, uh, different social classes, different colors, different ethnic groups, uh, different countries. Uh, but they're all in this Amtrak train, supposedly. Hmm. And uh, that's what the book is about. They, they become the centerpiece. So it's not just lecturing about the four Bs and resilience in our emotional footprint. It's in living color. These, four, these ten people are amazing people. They're real people. Now, they're fudge, so nobody will know who they are, but I know them yes. extremely well. Let me, let me ask you this question. In our culture, there is not a lot of examples of the positive things you've outlined in your book. Do you think selflessness was also an ingredient in these people? Yes, uh, and I think that people are talking more about that, it's, but that goes with benevolence. Yes, And uh, it goes with all of those things. When you're well-grounded, when you don't have to uh, put on an act for people, you don't have to be brash or uh, arrogant or a bully or any of this, where you can accept yourself and learn about yourself and try to improve yourself, when you can be grateful, gratitude for what you have and not carping all the time what you don't have, when you have some kind of principles about your life and when you are a kind soul, 
then in fact, you're exactly right. Uh, the word you use is what again? Selflessness. Selflessness. It has to do with all of this put together. And I think it's an important core part of the four Bs. But a selfless person is all of these things. He or she is not just benevolent. But a selfless person also has a credo that he or she believes in. They're, a selfless person is grounded in, in the sense that they feel self-accepting as well as um, accepting of other people, tolerant, cooperative, respectful, all the things, frankly, that are lacking in um, there's an increasing incivility, I think, and certainly in the uh, blogosphere, absolutely, trolling is terrible, mm-hmm. but also in politics, the current campaign at times gets very ugly. Right. And, and unfortunately, I think it serves as a kind of bad example for our youth. This is the way we're supposed to behave. Because look at the leaders behaving True. that way. The other they, culture. They, they uh, denounce each other. They call each other names. They're disrespectful. They're, uh, it's a hell of a way to live. I hope we don't make that a... Uh, <laughs> a kind of a chi- childlike or childish approach to life is what it looks terrific, like from the outside. way to put it. Absolutely. Yeah. You have uh, ten, of, 10 or 12 people ahead. that you, you have highlighted or focused on. Which of the stories do you think is uh, the one that really grabbed you the most and uh, you feel would be the most inspirational to share with my audience? God, it's, it's a tough question. I've got to ask. I don't even have the book in front of me, but I know them all so well. Um, you want a male or a female? <laughs> well, I'll, we'll take one of each if you've got. Okay. Well, uh, let's 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 take the uh, well. Let's take the guy who's the cover of the book is. Uh, I don't know if you have it in front of you. I do. Um, it is. Uh, it's called Crossroads. I have it hanging. It's a, from a painting I have hanging uh, in my house, and it, it's done by the guy who's the, the I call him Neville DaCosta in the book. Um, that's not his real name, but he was an extraordinary. He died just a few years ago in his late seventies. But he had a tumultuous life. Um, he was a man born in, in uh, Jamaica and went to, came to New York in, in the rough streets of Jamaica and abandoned by his father and uh, mother often had to d- demean herself, demean herself to support her kids mm. uh, by prostituting herself. Um, it was a rough drug scene. It was violent. They came to New York impoverished in the slum. He was um, a very tall boy, but he was interested in uh, guitar and art and not in athletics and not in drugs and not in things like that. And, and so he was bullied a lot. And uh, also his mother was gone working two domestic jobs simultaneously to just so they can afford a little apartment. And he kept developing his art and his um, um, guitar playing, uh, classical and folk and jazz, uh, and he we frequented those scenes. Those scenes, unfortunately, in New York at the time, in the 50s and 60s, um, were riddled with drugs. He got involved heavily in drugs and had to go to rehab. He had two or three marriages. <laughs> mm. uh, I, 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 I laugh because uh, this is just a the tip of the iceberg of his life. He lived uh, after one of his marriages broke apart and he was humiliated. He went to France and he got hepatitis there and uh, he he fell in love and was abandoned by uh, a woman who just dazzled him and he never forgot her and wrote, wrote, painted an extraordinary painting of her and came back and he, his, his kids had been estranged from him from his couple of his marriages. Um, But I met him um, in his 50s, and he, was, he has been 
He had been through rehab. He had been through a stint in prison in, in France. He had been through a lot of things. And I met this generous, kind guy, full of humor, dry, sober, uh, who'd reunited uh, with uh, two of his, uh, three of his grandchildren, and one in particular, his youngest uh, grandson, became his um, companion because the boy's own family was falling apart. And actually, he helped raise him for the last 20 years of his life. This guy is now a graduate of college and doing as a, in a profession, actually. But uh, the story is so full of uh, remarkable twists, turns, unexpected changes, and that goes for all of our lives. You know, life's rolling around for, for a time. Don't get too comfortable because mm -hmm. if something's going to happen. That there, there, this old expression from Germany, uh, which means man plans and God laughs. Right. Because you never know what's going to happen around the corner. So this is um, Neville DaCosta. I was just going to give you his real name, but it, <laughs> I, I, it dropped out of my mouth. It's her. The woman is, <laughs> the woman is uh, an overweight, very large woman in a very dreary background, raised in a very dreary background, overweight girl, uh, mother abandoned her at the age of five. Uh, her father was a ship steward. Uh, she was pawned off on her grandmother who didn't want her. And these two, uh, she was a young teenager at the time, and uh, or younger than that, actually. I guess she was a pre-adolescent. Um, these two women did not want to be with each other. She was thrust there by her father, who, by the way, died at sea about a, a year later. Mm. And... Um, the grandmother was uh, didn't want her in the first place, but was paid off. They got to like each other, then love each other. They, the, what they had in common was a love of music and a love of the Catholic Church. It sounds so bizarre. She was dis wherever she went because she was obese. Um, and made her way, clawed her way through uh, undergraduate school. I'm skipping over stuff, but this is an amazing sure. story. And then law school. And she became a, uh, uh, a lawyer for the Department of Labor, yeah. uh, pleading union cases. Um, and she became extraordinarily successful. Had a always was heavy, but had noticed as she as she uh, went on in her life, the one of her major there were two major issues. One was a lack of love, either as a lover or any friends. But she was kind of dissed by her because of her, she wasn't attractive per se. Right. And the other was her love of God. Um, and she became very active in the Catholic Church. She did meet somebody in her 40s, actually, who became her lover for over 20 years, a married man who would come into town. She met on a, a very uh, tense, threatening uh, legal case for the Department of Labor in Washington. And long story short, uh, she became an activist and is now, she's in her late 60s now, an activist in the movement, to, uh, feminist movement in the Roman Catholic Church. She's been to Rome. Uh, <laughs> these stories are, are beyond belief. Mm. Uh, she never married. Uh, she's still active in the church, uh, but, but is seen as a renegade by, by some priests. Uh, she feels that she was able to satisfy her need for being appreciated and uh, loved and and sexually fulfilled 
all things she never thought she'd have a chance to do. She is a respected person. She's well-known because uh, she put both in her legal work around the world and in um, the the church. And it is, it is such an amazing story. So she's now in her late 60s, started off in, again, the, her parents were immigrants from England and, and kind of impoverished themselves. And here she is. Uh, and there's more to it. Her mother, when she abandoned her, she made a trek to Europe once to try to find her lost mother. Uh, used Interpol, used other things, never found her. Her mother w- took off for the continent to uh, pursue a theatric career. I think her mother was actually bipolar, but we'll never know. Never know. So yeah. that's those, just those two. Mm. There are ten, uh, and each one is a remarkable story. And they're, they're done in a narrative style, too, which I like, and, and you have used the four Bs on each of the stories to tell how those uh, particular aspects of their lives fit into their their out, the outcome of their life, and also resilience. And uh, I appreciate your sharing those stories. We have 246 pages. Uh, readers, I think you would enjoy this because it's, uh, it's done in a narrative and almost a fictional style, uh, but it is... Uh, based on true lives and uh, true events in uh, people who have had an emotional journey. The title, again, is Our Emotional Footprint, Ordinary People and Their Extraordinary Lives. My guest has been Saul Levine, M.D. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Where do we get copies of this book? Yeah, you can get it from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and some bookstores. Uh, I've seen it at a bookstore, uh, but easily ordered, either electronic or, or print version. And I appreciate your calling me for for this interview. Fantastic. It's great visiting with you. Is there anything else coming up in the future in written form that uh, you might not, want to not share? Not at the moment. Not at the I'm moment. I'm thinking about doing a, a biography of somebody who is, uh, has, uh, like the two stories I told you, but even more bizarre. <laughs> and uh, But I'm, I'm, I'm actually circling it right now. Excellent. Well, this is an inspirational book. Uh, readers, you'll enjoy it. Our Emotional Footprint. Ordinary People and Their Extraordinary Lives. Dr. Saul Levine has been my guest. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Thank you. My pleasure. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With Baby and Toddler Instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled Shadow Ballet, a novel of mystery and intrigue. 
Maya Author joining me from, at this point, in the United States, the western United States. I think he's in Arizona, I'm not sure, or New Mexico, one of those areas. Dan Reagan, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you. And how are you doing? You're uh, actually a resident of Hawaii and have made it to the mainland in order to do interviews and probably just kick back and have fun. I'm here on vacation and business with the book and trying to get things out there for people to know that I'm uh, published and want them to read the book. Fabulous. Uh, Let me just spell your last name because I'm pronouncing it Reagan. It is spelled R-A-G-O-N so that people who might do a search uh, can can locate you. You have uh, published this at 546 pages, your first novel that's been published. How long have you desired to be an author? Actually, probably since I was in my teens. And you're now in your 20s, so it hasn't been that long. Yes. We want, <laughs> do you really want to talk about the first number in my name? No. Uh, in my <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, no, I, I don't think we need to do that. You, uh, you have uh, desired to be an author a long time. This is a, a rather, I would say, a, I will use the word loquacious. You have, you have a lot of words in here. Five hundred and forty-six pages is a, is a pretty ambitious project. How long did it take, Dan? The first page, first words went on page in nineteen ninety-three. Wow. And uh, yeah. did, did it take? It took, uh, about, it took me about three years to actually developed the story, and since then it has been another however many years it is for me to reach the point where it was ready for publication and somebody was willing to publish. Are you a perfectionist when it comes to the details? Yes. Aha. Uh-huh. And your background in, in career, other than being an author, would it also reflect that? I would think so. I am a retired California pilot patrol officer. I'm also a basically a retired pilot. I had my own flight operation for five years, and I have worked as a business management consultant for a number of years. So, yeah, attention to detail is a pretty much part of my nature. Phenomenal. When you began the story of Shadow Ballet, did you start with an outline, or was this something that developed as you were going through the creative process? Actually, my methodology was to develop the characters to fit into the location that I had and let the story develop on the basis of my characters. Uh, they essentially characters told me their story and I wrote it down. Shadow Ballet is a is a fascinating title. What does it emote from your perspective and how does it fit the story? The story is one that is built around the shadowy kind of nature of clandestine operations and the the way that when you're doing an investigation into a criminal activity it seems like you're chasing shadows and mm. never find yourself where you can grab a hold of anything solid and that's where the shadow ballet comes in the shadows keep dancing and you keep trying to catch up to it. You uh, mentioned in your personal bio that you uh, were, a, uh, uh, as a young guy, built a cabin, and uh, there is a reference in your first chapter about a cabin. Is uh, that some of that reminiscence that's been carried over into the storyline? Yes. When I was 17, I helped to refit a cabin at Big Lagoon, and when I was there, I came up with the idea that this would be a great place to set a mystery novel, and... That idea never went away. It just took a long time for it to materialize. 
Would you call this a heavy action novel, or is it character-driven? It is pretty much character-driven, yes. And what is the primary mystery, if you can share that without giving away too much of the detail, that the reader is going to get drawn into? The primary mystery, as far as the lead part of the story, is the dead body that shows up on the beach. But the characters that are involved bring with them some activities that are from the shadows of clandestine activities on the part of the government and how the people got involved with that and other parts of the underworld of criminal activity. So that's why the title is Shadow Ballet, is that you have these shadowy areas that are around us all the time and have them dancing and balancing and moving and maneuvering around each other. That's how the story develops. And in bringing out all of the story, it is one where I hope I surprise people at the end. Is there another author that's either contemporary or historically that influenced your style? I read a lot of different authors, and I try to draw what I like from all of them. Now, each individually has certain characteristics that I like, and whether it's Robert Parker for his rather crisp and tight way of telling a story with dialogue, or Dean Koontz for his kind, his, his way of describing things with creating pictures with words, which is what I try to do, and I've got a whole list of others, but I can't get one off the top of my head right now to go along with that. But uh, Connolly is another one that I like because of his police-based novel and James Patterson. And I, I, I read a lot of other mm-hmm. authors, and as I say, I try to draw from them better ways to say things my own way. Is Gene Parker your main character in the novel, or are there other supporting actors. Gene is actually not the main character. The the, theory, the story is, is based around uh, the activities of detectives of John Ragsdale and Tom Schroeder, but Gene Parker is involved with one of the main characters that they keep bouncing onto in their investigation. And where is the story set? Is it set in contemporary times, or is it uh, past tense? It is basically the middle 90s, as far as the time set. This was when I was writing the story, and that's where the timing on it was set, and I kept it there. You uh, are in a genre that has a lot of uh, competition as far as storylines and uh, people trying to get other readers' attentions. Why do you think they will gravitate to your novel, and what do you think will stand out to them when they finally start reading Shadow Ballad. Ballet. <laughs> ballet. Sorry about that, hope... Ballet. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that ballot, that has an O in it. It does have an O in it, yes. <laughs> I think that what will be something that will attract them is essentially the attention to detail in the story of keeping, providing enough detail so that as the story unfolds, everything is clearly supported so that even though it may be a surprising twist when you think about what came about previously in the story, 
it's all there, it's all supported, and it's a, an interesting and exciting and enjoyable read. Is there is there a specific market, not a market, but do you think this is going to be appealing to a broad audience, or is it a little narrower in your perspective? I think it will appeal to a broad audience. Uh, there is a romantic story involved in it that will attract people who read uh, romance novels. There is the detective story will will attract people who like to read detective stories. There is the clandestine side of it, which will bring people into those who, you know, bring people who like to read about international intrigue. And uh, we place all of those things together, and uh, the the ballet of shadows that goes on amongst them, I think it will satisfy a very broad eye. You've mentioned your main character is actually a detective. Is his role in this sufficient or interesting enough that you have extended that and maybe are going to do a follow-up? To this book. This is the opening book of a trilogy, and the following novels have already been written. Fabulous. Fabulous. Are they ready for distribution, or are they still in the work stages? They are uh, within a very short time of being ready. The final edit kind of a circumstance on, on the second one, and a couple of edits to do on the third one, but they are, the stories have been written, have been told, and uh, they're, they're pretty close to ready to go, yeah. You've mentioned that this is really character-driven in its context and approach. Is there an action scene in here that might grab a producer in Hollywood and make him want to uh, do the big-screen version of this? It would be difficult to choose which one you want, because there are action scenes. And they are... Uh, it starts out with an action. And it, be, and it ends with an action scene, and in between there's, there's six or eight more. So, yes, there are action scenes involved. And your goal at this point is to become a, a well-known published author from this point forward. That is correct. Yeah, one of the neat things also about uh, visiting with Dan is uh, he has a very close friend, uh, Charles, who is uh, also there and has read his book. I thought I'd ask Charles about the book and what his opinion was of the style. Charles, uh, tell me about it. What do you think that people will find interesting? Uh, oh, first, first thing off, I'm I'm a, a factual type of reader. I'm not much into mysteries, you know, anything like that. So this is kind of my first go around with it. I took on this to basically look and help a friend and give him an opinion on this book. I found myself dredgingly opening the first page and by the second page going, well, let's see what else is going on. And the third and the fourth, and it kept compelling me to turn the next page. I would just get to the point where it was like, I have to see what's happening next. That's the style of writing, Daniel. Not only does he put you right in the place, you will smell the 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 smells of the Humboldt County and and uh, and area. You'll smell the pine. You'll feel the fog surround your body. That's the degree of uh, emphasis he will put on placing you in the right place. You will feel the characters. You will know what they're thinking. You will feel their back thoughts, the thoughts that are suspicions that they're getting the police's interactions you'll feel the ignorance of of some of the answers that they get and it all of these things combine together with the, from the scenery to the story in as its complexity as it is 
but clearly illustrated, um, it, it creates such a compelling force that you're not able to set it down for any length of time. You're wow. drawn back to it. Well, Charles, that's a great commendation, and I will mention to my uh, readers, uh, to my listeners, that this is uh, unpaid and unsolicited, I guess. I don't know. I, maybe maybe he's going to buy a coffee or something. But thanks, Charles, for sharing that, too. Yeah, I I was fortunate enough to get a, uh, to get a, a preview of the draft before it even got published. Excellent. And so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's well, well worth the read and the time you will spend. You won't put it down. Charles, Dan... It's been great visiting with you. This, a novel of mystery and intrigue, Shadow Ballet, and author Dan Reagan. Dan, where do we get copies of your book? It is available at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and of course from my publisher, iUniverse.com. Google also has it available in their G-Print, and I'm not sure where else it has been distributed from my publisher, but I know of those locations for certain. And those are the places I would first direct people. Have you uh, launched your website or fan page yet? I have not seen it yet. No, this is brand new. The book has only been available for a matter of uh, a couple of weeks. So <laughs> I it's haven't fresh. seen all the pieces yet. They're still coming together. <laughs> well, best of luck with that, and uh, we won't call it a ballot. It's a ballet. Uh, the book title again is Shallow. Oh, we can't read Shallow. It's... <laughs> It's really a great book. That's right. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me say this for sure, you. Go ahead. You seem to be fun I appreciate that. Yeah, please the describe the name of your book. The, the, the title is Shadow Ballet. The author is Dan Reagan. There you go. Well, thank you, Dan, for correcting me and getting this straightened out. Authors uh, are, uh, are an interesting bunch, and my listeners will enjoy reading your book, I'm sure. So thank you, Dan, for joining me. I hope to visit with you in the future, and once you get that web page up and running, I'm sure people will uh, gravitate to that as well. Uh, they can reach it under your name, Dan Reagan, R-A-G-O-N, and uh, locate this book and anything else that comes up in the future. Thanks again for joining me today. Thank you. My pleasure for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, A True Free Market, Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. And the author is Stephen Taft. And Steve joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Steve. Hello, Steve. Good to be with you. Well, great to have you on the show. This is going to be a great discussion. You have a very unique view 
of what's going on in the country and the economic part of our country, which, of course, without economics, nothing happens. Uh, You make a statement, a free market cannot thrive when constructed in ignorance of economics. That's a pretty strong statement. You also say, we have also seen markets fail, but we have not learned the nature of a true free market. So that's the kind of the focus of our discussion. Before we get into it, Steve, tell us a little bit about your background. You have an impressive economics background, and then we'll get into some of the details of your book. I got into Wall Street when I got the bug to have uh, kids, and I felt like I needed to make money. But my training on Wall Street, uh, and I started at Lehman Brothers, and for anyone who pays attention, I left Lehman Brothers years before the collapse, so it wasn't my fault. (laughs) Uh, uh, But my training there, I, I felt, was very shallow. And so I started going to uh, night school, and being in New York, there, there are many schools uh, to choose from, and I, I went to most of them that offered classes in economics and finance and security analysis and all that kind of stuff. And economics, uh, it soon became clear, under, under, was the underpinning to everything that happens on Wall Street, and yet it was probably the least discussed uh, a topic uh, within – you know, in the day-to-day of the firm. So uh, I really focused on economics because it seemed important. Uh, I think I was right. It is important. And, and it became kind of a, a passion and a hobby. Uh, and I've just been studying for a long time. Uh, the book uh, that you kindly mentioned, The True Free Market, I, I really thought about for probably 20 years before I decided I knew what to say. And started writing it about four and a half years ago. You say we need a great debate about capitalism. Uh, we're talking about the wrong thing in all these political discussions. We need to talk about capitalism. Yes, and uh, capitalism is a wonderful thing. Capitalism uh, has the potential. It's the only economic system I know that has the ability to unleash uh an individual's full potential, as well as uh, take care of a society uh, collectively. Uh, You know, you can take care of uh, other systems, just don't do that. So uh, capitalism is is the be-all and end-all to economics as far as I'm concerned. But uh, we need to understand uh, capitalism better to do it better. Uh, I think you, you mentioned, Steve, uh, uh, the comment about uh, we don't understand the nature of a true free market. And I think that's true. Uh, if, if you listen to our uh, politicians who, who make the policy, they're really making decisions based on what uh, their base wants or the public wants, what the poll numbers show. And very rarely, if ever, do you hear them discussing these big questions that affect all of our lives in the economic world that are founded on uh, fundamental economics. It's, it's all about people's opinion, and it's not about how things really work. Uh, and that I have found very frustrating over the years and uh, felt like this book was a way to help tweak the conversation and, and get us talking about 
economics as it works for real people and, and not in the political realm where policies have a temporary uh, satisfaction for, for people on one side or the other of the aisle, but don't really solve anything in the long run. You focus on haves versus have-nots. Of course, we have that all in politics today. We hear so much about it. And the way it works right now, it's not, it's not that capitalism is bad, as you point out, but we've, we've given it rules that create tensions between the haves and have-nots. Yes. Uh, for example, uh, the, just the, the basic what seems, uh, you know, there's the expression, there's two things that are, that are uh, uh, necessary in life, death and taxes. Those are the two things you can't avoid. Well, the taxes we created, okay, and, and the fact that taxes fall on income, for example, was our choice. As, as people, as a citizenry. It, it's not as natural as death by any stretch. Uh, so what happens when you impose an in- income tax? Well, everything uh, that we buy has a price attached to it, obviously. And every price is, is priced t- so that the producer of that product or the provider of that service can make a profit. This is in general terms. And a profit becomes what's left after the business expenses and taxes are paid. So every price has an after-tax profit built into it for the producer that we all are paying for. So in effect, when we buy something, uh, whether it's a, a box of envelopes or a new car, uh, we're, we're paying a price that includes, as a piece of it, a profit for the manufacturer of that box of envelopes or that car. So what does this mean? This means that's, that's normal. No, no, that's not rocket science. But what this means is that uh, every price is set according to the people who pay income tax. Now, as you may remember, you know, about half our country, a little less, but about half, don't pay income taxes. So even the people who are not paying income tax directly are still in whatever they buy helping to pay the income tax for the people who do pay income taxes. You with me so far? Definitely. And so what happens is that just by having there be an income tax, poor people, because they're helping to pay the income tax for the producers who tend to be the wealthier people, uh, are paying more than they otherwise would and are therefore uh, incrementally a little poorer than they otherwise would be. And the wealthier people and the producers are, because there's an income tax, are having that tax helped to be paid for by everyone who buys their product. And so therefore they're a little richer than they otherwise would be. So, so having my contention is having an income tax, just that basic thing that seems so fundamental to our economy, having chosen to do that in 1913, uh, has created a scenario where there's an ever growing, uh, 
divide between rich and poor, between the haves and the have-nots. That I'm not saying there wouldn't be wealthy and there wouldn't be poor otherwise. Of course there would be. This is capitalism, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the degree of, of the gulf between them is far wider with an income tax than it would be without it. Seems like the news is filled with discussions about different ways to create uh, or to change the income tax system, but you're saying it's not the right conversation. I am absolutely saying it's not the right conversation. Uh, You know, I mean, if you're a capitalist, why do you want to make capital more expensive by taxing it? That's backwards to me. Uh, You know, when when there's only one thing uh, that we don't make, Capital, by the way, for those who don't follow this closely, is everything we do make. Capital is, is everything we produce. It's, this, it's uh, the salaries we get for providing a service at our jobs. Uh, so, so capital is everything we work for. Uh, and everything we buy is capital. By taxing that stuff, we're just making uh, our lives not only more expensive for many of us, for most of us, but it also distorts the value of of all these things in our lives, including our salaries. So there's only one thing in an economy that people don't make, that people don't produce. And that one thing is the land. Land is there before there's ever uh, any economy. Land is there before people arrive, because otherwise there's no place to plant a flag. Right, so the value of land is 100% created because a community develops on and around that land. So the more uh, active uh, the the community is, uh, the higher the value of the land is going to be under it. Make sense? It does definitely. I understand. Okay. There's only so, so much so, land. So so the value of land. To me, because it's created by the community, becomes a natural source of funds for the community. And if you're if you're taxing the value of land, not the buildings on it, just the land, because the buildings on it are capital. If you get away from taxing capital and just tax the value of land, which nobody made, uh, then you're not distorting the values of salaries and, and other capital goods in the economy. You're not uh, creating uh, this increasing gulf between rich and poor uh, because you, you get away from that. And, and it's, it's a neutral, it's an economically neutral tax to tax land value, and uh, it eliminates many of the problems that have led to uh, – our ever-increasing size of government. Well, the country thrived for over 100 years without an income tax. That's true, but there were capital taxes. Certainly. Uh, there were. There, were, was, I mean, there had know, to be. There, there were, had to be uh, certain government. and right. fees and right. all kinds of uh, capital taxes levied, not on income. But uh, as one can find in the book, the effects are the same. Uh, you know, the, these distorting effects that I started to describe, but when you tax capital, 
are not just the result of income taxes, but from any tax on capital. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it seems small to be sure. Uh, and in one person's life, they may not be able to feel uh, much of a difference. But when you consider that we're a nation of over 300 million, maybe 150 million active uh, working in the economy, that uh, becomes a big effect. And when you're looking at the big picture, as they hopefully do in Washington, then it becomes palpable. And, and we start to see uh, when we tax properly and we have our capitalism operating as it can operate instead of the way it does now, when we unleash it to, to act like capitalism should, our deficits come down, the need for, for all these fix-it programs that comprise our government, many of them go away. Uh, so we can start to shrink the government. We can start to consequently free up the population even more uh, to do what people are going to do. Uh, and by the way, I'll say this too, when you're taxing the value of land, it creates an incentive to uh, care for that land because if you're on the hook for the taxes, uh, if that land gets soiled you know, or polluted somehow, you're still paying the tax on land that is no longer as productive as it used to be. So there's a built-in incentive to take care of the place. You know, and still not distort the economy. So uh, this is, uh, I realize, a new way of thinking about economics for many people. Uh, but, Steve, as you mentioned, there's uh, a, a need for uh, a new debate, a new conversation right. in our debate. Um, a, couple, a month or two ago, uh, David Brooks who's a conservative uh, columnist in the New York Times, talked about uh, that there's a coming debate about capitalism, about you know what the role of government is in, in taking care of us, the citizens. And uh, he's right. There is a debate coming. Uh, the Nobel Prize was just given to Angus Deaton. Uh, some of the work that he did to earn that Nobel Prize in economics was on how economics works at the level of real life, not theoretical uh, effects. And uh, his work shows that you have to focus on the ability of the less wealthy to take care of themselves, not on the wealthy. The wealthy are going to be fine. Uh, now, some people are going to hear that and saying, I'm attacking the rich. I am not attacking the rich. If you can be a billionaire, so be it. Kudos. And by the way, you shouldn't have to pay a dime of what you earned to the government. But what you don't earn is the value of the land that you use to make your money. Well, there... you know, access to land is like the uh, admission ticket to the economy. It's hard to work if you're not putting your foot down on the ground somewhere. A very novel and different, innovative approach to talking about a true free market. We've been listening to Stephen Taft. He's the author of his book, A True Free Market, Conversations on Gaining Liberty and Justice Through Economics. Steve, what's the best way to get your book? 
the best way to get the book is uh, Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNoble.com. Of course, it's available at iUniverse.com. Uh, it's also available on Google Play and Apple Play. And if you walk into a local bookstore, they should be able to order it for you. Definitely. Uh, and and I, I just want to say before we go that, uh, look, I realize that this is not a common conversation I'm trying to instigate here. Uh, but what I am trying to do, and I hope the effect will be, is that just we can tweak the conversation that we're having as a culture and just start to see what the effects are, what the unintended consequences of our decisions are, so that we can begin to be more efficient as a, as a community of uh, citizens and government working hand in hand. And hopefully over time we can we can see that uh, not everything we take for granted is the way it ought to be. There are alternatives out there, and we should start talking about them, even if they don't happen right away or ever. At least it's a better conversation. So that's, that's my goal, is to get a better conversation going. Well, it makes sense. If things aren't working, then why keep doing the same things? That's called insanity. So let's try, exactly. a, try a new approach, and that's what your book is all about. Steve, we've got to go. We really appreciate you joining us on iUniverse Radio. Well, it was great to be here. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.